0: Hi, welcome to Deep Americana. I am your host for season four. My name is Wes Unreal. And season four is unrelated thoughts on being an unruly adoptee. Welcome uh, to an episode I think of as the paper chase. Um, The efficient response to disruption, infants, toddlers, babies or disruptive power structures is to eliminate the disruption, right? To smooth it over, erasing babies and disappearing pregnant women and girls. That was a patriarchal technocratic response to a moral moment. The choice has ramifications though. When these adoptees, my cohort, comes to consciousness, becomes aware of the injury, the identity trauma, sort of done in service of an undisruptive moralizing moment. They can expect to experience eliminationist rhetoric to delay the adoptee, or I guess we're calling them the newly become recoveries demand for re-articulation. Who will employ those rhetorics and the form they will take will be unique to each recovery's experience. But be sure there are agents of these social structures that will speak even if faintly the restraints that have remained unrehearsed otherwise throughout the adoptee's life. That I am disruptive hopefully extends even to this paragraph, uh, this insight. So equip yourself with resolve if you choose to search, as it can be no one else's journey. These unrelated thoughts of my own adoptee search experience are barely trailheads, not roadmaps. You must be alone in your decisions and your directions, right? As for myself, my original birth certificate, being seen unsealed, that would be really grand, right? I'd love that. I could see for sure that my biological father's name is not on there and then petition the court to put it on there <laughs> um, because I know and have proved who he is. I'm not sure what that would prove to the state of Idaho, but it would at least correct a lie, a long-standing lie by omission. I have a father, he isn't Native American, and I have no right or claim on that ancestry. Uh, Instead, I was as native an Idahoan as any second-generation Idahoan could claim, and there was a large extended family that never knew I was around, even as we strode across the very same small-town terrain. I crossed paths unwittingly for the first 14 years of my life with uncles and aunts and cousins and sisters and brothers, visiting Boise and Sun Valley and Twin Falls and Stanley, Idaho. Idaho is not a large state, and there's only so many people in it. I don't think the state is run by heartless automatons. There is a reason for these laws, but it's absurd to deny me access to a document that only proves what I already know. My biological parentage is provably different from what they keep on file. My birth name was Harper. That was my last name. I do not know if my first name would have been Elliot, but I have always believed that was my real name. Elliot Harper became the name of a character in a novel I started writing as a way to control my own narrative, a response to that suicidal moment, listening to Fixed by Nine Inch Nails. Uh, To imagine a world where I was never split from my mother, lighter, engaged in the politics of the moment as protesters, mother and son. We would take on the different wars over the years, move from protest to protest while she made a living as painter, writer, and performance artist. That was the world I imagined I would fit into, a nomadic body, politically infused scene where change in power could be brought to the oppressed and could overturn the greedy. Uh, Then I read Stone Junction by the author Jim Dodge and realized. Someone had actually written a novel very much like what I was thinking about writing. Um, I've yet to finish the novel I'm writing. It's taken different forms now, but it lurks there, ever-present in half-finished form in the office I share with the cat's litter box. As a teenager, I've been taught that universities were a dangerous threat to Western culture and Western identity. European identity. Um, Now today, married to a professor who studies new media and video games, and I myself, working within a university setting, I find it hard to imagine a university doing anything other than reifying the cultural zeitgeist in which it is enmeshed. Universities are reflections of a social community, and they are inherently flexible, whimsical even. But when I was in the Christian community, the danger of Marxist pagan professors actively seducing conservative Christians into lifetimes of bondage to sin was a serious matter to which many hours of lecture and breakout strategy sessions, where role-play defense strayed into odd conversations about UFOs and hollow earth theories, were de rigueur. Too ridiculous to be real, these sessions included films on satanic backmasking and rock music tales of satanic suicide packs, of drug use that led to orgies of violence. As a child, I attended countless missionary nights where I heard stories about, quote, witch doctors and wars with spirits. Uh, universities were seen as equally hostile spaces towards true Christians as the islands and jungles that the missionary night speakers described. I was never all that comfortable going to college as a result. But ultimately, I was called to do something artistic, and I deeply wanted to write or create. Then I learned my adoptive parents had spent all of my college fund on that seven weeks of keeping me locked up in a mental hospital, chasing a diagnosis. Additionally, their staunch and irrational beliefs about debt and the government prevented them from signing on to a federal student loan application. So... As I mentioned previously, in a previous episode, I waited until I was 26 years old and could file without them before I was able to take out any money for school. Um, I I was so angry that they did this, that they refused to help me attend a university, refused to help secure a loan so I could go to school, that I vowed never to have anything to do with them again. Um, I would break this vow, kind of to my regret at times, and then re-vow it more than once in my adult life. If there was one thing I could go back and tell my young self, it would be, don't let anybody tell you that you're safe. I find that lyric in a zeal and ardor song, nowadays. Uh, uh, my, My aesthetic has always leaned towards the dark, I suppose. I have Saturn in the 11th house, and gemini in my birth chart which astrologers will tell me could even indicate or how Sesportis describes as possibly even sustaining trauma during the time in one's womb and seeing life as an inherently hostile environment once you come out into it thus for most of my adult life everything is secretive everything is kept internalized for me to Speak on all of these matters in one go means that I had to isolate myself in the middle of the night, not telling when I'm doing this, and perform that Saturn and Gemini 11th house energy. I survive by always being on edge, by scanning and studying my environment for predators, for threats, for entropy. Perhaps that's my Leo ascendant. Uh, I studied the face of my adoptive father for clues to his rage as a child. I learned to listen to the movements within the house itself, of the family house, there on Aviator Lane, and then afterwards on Wichita, where we lived, so I could read forbidden stories and novels without being caught. I learned to sneak out of the house without notice. I learned to wear headphones and listen to conversations while pretending there was music playing through them. My life as a child was a strategy against oblivion. The stakes were always existential. My adoptive father had several sayings which defined my childhood, one of which was likely informed this obsession with self-preservation. He would say, they, they can kill you, but there's laws against eating you. He usually said this about the federal government in reference to regulations or taxes. He often used it as a kind of advice before I went on trips or moved away, punctuated with a, remember, they can kill you, but there's laws against eating you. The second was his answer whenever I would ask from a young age throughout my adolescence, where are we going? He would say, crazy, want to go along? Uh, He would respond with that and then refuse to answer until we reached our destination. I believe he thought these two phrases were humorous, that perhaps I didn't get the joke or understand his intentions. Often his refusal to tell me where we were headed would turn into anger and anxiety on my part given that as the incidents of trauma mounted through my childhood, the narrative of accumulation of trauma I experienced, I grew increasingly distrustful of his trips, destinations and intentions. He did not, to his credit, say either of these phrases when he drove me to Texas to be committed to a Christian mental hospital. My reliance on approved forms of knowing, given my upbringing and my immersion in spirituality, was not strong. I left the Christian mental hospital to finish 11th grade, after which I was taken on a two-week retreat in Manitou Springs, Colorado, where I was taught there, that universities were literally filled with communist Marxist homosexual professors who were attempting to turn the U.S. into an atheist nation. One of the activities there was what I talked about in the previous episodes, a protest of an abortion clinic in neighboring Colorado Springs, really a mounting up of Randall's Operation Rescue that metastasized across the nation later. It was an activity that I avoided by sneaking into Manitou Springs where I found an occult bookstore and had my tarot cards read. The experience launched a new path of self-knowledge, something I desperately needed to develop. I thought more about what I could use to learn where I came from, so reading about spirit guides and animal totems led to a curiosity about past life regression, trance states, hypnosis, and other forms of memory retrieval. And all that led me down a lot of different paths. It seemed likely to me that if reincarnation was real or genetic memory that perhaps I could unlock memories from my own ancestors or maybe I could find a way to call up the spirits of my ancestors like, you know, short stories Herbert West reanimator or the case of Charles Dexter Ward as I'd made my way to H.P. Lovecraft by way of Robert Anton Wilson, whom I'd also read thoroughly by this point, and also dove deeply into astrology and tarot, figuring if I could not uncover my past conventionally, I would unpuzzle it with signifiers and symbolism. I knew where and when I was born, and I hoped my birth chart could somehow explain who I was and why I was given up. I hoped I could find the right questions to make sense of the answers tarot provided. You know, as a child growing up within a Christian school in Idaho, I knew the power of the tarot or so I had thought then. Now I see it as a brainstorming tool. Uh, Then I saw it as directly communing with spirits or somehow fueled by spirits, an engine of meaning. But that was also a phase I grew out of or outgrowth, uh, grew to encompass. The advent of DNA research and online social networks around ancestry brought was a much more efficient oracle. Um, it's still a black mirror I scry against though, even now as I record this, and staring at my Macintosh with a bitten apple as the icon. It is not lost on me that my childhood was brought up seeing Apple, the company, as an extension of the Antichrist. I've used my spit and cheek swabs to divine the biological relatives on my biological mother and father's sides of my family tree after sending those ingredients off to laboratories. And through that information and help from the vast community of adoptees and search angels online, I've successfully found the people from whom I came. Uh, The occult gradually became revealed and the path I traveled came full circle. So, for years, before I found my biological mother and that side of my family, I was driven to build a platform from which to be seen. I blogged, built my own web pages, published whatever I could come up with to publish at almost feverish need, to digitize and upload all of my thoughts and expressions, primarily in the form of poetry, Um, and then increasingly with a desire to explore the experience of moving through a website as a conceptual space, as a user experience. So, I blogged for years under various names, interweaving those blogs to see what kind of effect I could have on search engines, just to see what it would do. Um, It was an experiment in understanding how to elevate and prescribe authority and identity in online ways eventually professionally in different ways. The computer was a portal I discovered when I was young, my adoptive father's IBM PC a now archaic Z8086 that I used to type up hundreds of pages of poems, which are now browning in boxes at the closet in the room at the end of the hall. Those poems were my way of screaming against the void, hoping the intent would somehow cause an echo. Uh, that my desire would be enough to force a path through the improbable. If I couldn't find my biological parents, perhaps I could be found, scream loud enough to be heard across the canyon, uh, the chasm that had separated us. As As I first wrote this, this text that I ended up creating as a script and that I'm using in this episode, I was awaiting results from a second DNA test something I had taken in the hopes that this second test might connect me with relatives from my biological father's side of my family. My first test had been with 23 and me. My second was with Ancestry.com. I'd resisted Ancestry because of a bias that had been in my upbringing against Mormons. Um, But I had realized that there was a very good likelihood that... My biological father might be from a Mormon family, and if so, then I would be more likely to hit inside the ancestry.com database than inside 23andMe. So curiosity finally overrides that social reproach that I. Uh, also, there's a feeling of unworthiness of being cast aside that you have to overcome when you first spit into a tube and send it to a lab. Um, The reality is he may not have known I exist. I later learned this was the case. Um, I may be an entirely unexpected surprise, and I was. The circumstances around my conception are hazy and poorly articulated. Um, Even now, all that I've been told from those on my biological mother's side of the family was that my biological father is at least half, if not full, Native American, which I'd interpreted to be most likely Shoshone. He wasn't. I had very little beyond that inaccurate context from the time I corresponded with uh, members of the Harper family in 2004 until I contacted my biological father for the first time in late 2018. So this convoluted path, which then included many years where I wondered if I, or I believed I was Native American, uh, led me to discuss much of this with my friends and neighbors at the time I first learned this inaccurate bit of information. As I mentioned previously, my neighbor, at the time I first got the letter from my biological mother where she said that she had a boyfriend who was Native American, he, being the son of Sansom Flood, um, had really encouraged me to speak with her. Um, she talked with me for a long time graciously about the larger context of children being hidden from fathers, fostered and adopted in mass as a way to eradicate tribes. You know, I I referred to this previously, but I honestly learned a great deal in the wake of that conversation about indigenous affairs in Idaho uh, in the years leading up to my adoption, as well as the tensions around the country, and found this false narrative began to cohere, so I would remain falsely convinced for years that I must have some native ancestry, given what I felt was a calling to shamanism. Shamanism. Or techno shamanism, as I understood it, was the dominant principle in my life for many years. Cyber shamanism, shamanism. I understood myself and those around me as being aspects of their quote true spiritual nature quote expressed in our limited, limited physical universe, and I felt that most, if not all, people had a spirit helper of some kind, helper or parasite. This belief overlay how i interacted with others at that time too so the experience of spirits of the divine directly and the adaptation to the energies of the environment in which i became a shaman meant that my tribe that i healed were my close friends all of us in our early 20s learning to live on my own began with living with roommates and we were all very broken I think in the years following my time in high school, my friends were outsiders, co-workers at fast food restaurants, they were baristas, day laborers, uh, teleconference operators and telemarketers. My world was defined by a subculture of resistance to the dominant Christian culture of Wichita. I finished high school in nearby Goddard, graduating in 1992, which was also the year Operation Rescue was underway, a grassroots, quote, uh, protest. (laughs) seeking to shame and terrorize patients at clinics where abortions were performed. So these unruly crowds would chant Bible verses. Prayer was done publicly and aggressively as a weapon of social disapproval. Scenes of chaotic and Calvinistically ideologically driven criminality were being endorsed by the religious leaders that my adoptive parents considered godly. I found it impossible to talk to them rationally about any religious issue by this time. Amongst my friends, there was a feeling of powerlessness. We threw coat hangers at the crowds once or twice, but mostly we sought to remain under the radar of those types. We sought the company of um, like-minded stoners, trippers across the city of Wichita, as it seemed that those who smoked were by definition not part of the Christian supremacist, racist, homophobes who defined social norms in the town. I was deeply invested in outsider culture, in grunge, industrial noise music, in finding ways to define myself that were not reliant on ancestry, on tradition, but were responses in defiance of those venerations. I think fondly back to a night blasting Atari Teenage Riot's track Destroy 2,000 Years of Culture from my adoptive parents' house late at night and hearing Alec Empire scream destroy, destroy into the Kansas night rolling across the plowed fields and surely startling the neighbors. As the years passed, I felt trapped in the city of Wichita, the lack of mountain on the horizon ate away at my soul in a way that no one around me either understood or acknowledged. There was no affirmation of my identities, of which I had cultivated several. I had splintered myself across different social groups. Often I would find myself split as if in two, across two kinds of lives. Originally, that was the school and the church self when I was younger, then a work and social split, and at times a split across two types of social groups amongst those who knew more about me than others. Uh, I did keep my adoption a secret, something that I always felt awkward in discussing, and at that time I'd only done a little bit of research. As I became more focused, my social life suffered. So I believe now that I always seek distraction from the agonizing stillness of my mind. When I'm in motion, however that may be, I'm able to put my attention on something outside myself. That allows me to pretend to be normal. Me be functional, at least I'm in motion. When I'm at peace, at rest, prior to understanding how to do my own self-hypnosis, self-meditation, or create my own meditative states, my mind began to devour itself, sort of throwing up the past, throwing up questions, questing for purpose, drawn to create assumptions from incomplete and unhinged theorizings. So I'm undone by stillness without purpose when that happens or I'm overwhelmed with the moment. If, if I hadn't encountered that girl and those girls in Twin Falls, Idaho, teaching each other to forget the number five, right? If I hadn't had that seed towards understanding hypnosis, I don't know that I would survive those moments when I was suicidal. I don't know that my ability to govern my own mental states now would have ever arisen. Um, All moments are fraught with tension. Uh, A tension I assumed couldn't be released, but I learned that I could develop my own paths to releasing those tensions. And I learned it because of those seeds long ago in the Magic Valley. Even now, with more answers and more connections than I'd ever dared hope for when I first set out on this series of questions, it's that ability to... Refine and restrain my mind in such a way that I can achieve stillness. (laughs) I don't have to stare at a candle to get there. I can do it in my own ways now, counting backwards from 13. But without it, I would not be who I am. The stories we tell ourselves and the stories we see and the people who make those stories matter. And so there are a few movies that Ben Stiller made. He's one of the more amusing actors um, in popular culture that has tackled adoption in a few different ways. Uh, His film Zero Effect, which I want to say is 1997, is one that deals with adoption in a a way that's profoundly interesting. But the one I really want to talk about is Flirting with Disaster, a 1996 film. That film has at its heart uh, an argument that is being made that one should not search. It feels as though it was screenwritten by someone who is justifying adoption rather than somebody who was experiencing or had understood the empathy of an adoptee searching. Uh, For me, the earliest years where I first sensed that I was somehow out of joint, the sequence and the passage of time is difficult to pin down. Memories can be suspect things, and knowing something happened, being certain, is not enough to undo those events. Uh, Like holding a memory complete in my consciousness creates a tension that I can't easily discharge. Uh, I am anxious about memories as if they are landmines buried deep within an assumption of normalcy. So Ben Stiller's character in Flirting with Disaster reflects these constant landmines of anxiety. He is written as if someone from the outside observed an adoptee who is constantly triggered. Certainly in my adolescence beneath the surface there are memories that bite and sort of tear away at my composure. I I am the product of sin, brought into the world to suffer, and my rejection of my adoption is evidence of my failure as a son to be a son, to be a real boy for my adopters. Uh, My beliefs at the time in my memory were from the culture in which I was brought up, and my fears were a reflection of the hatreds and biases of those around me. Fears that I was going to end up in an internment camp for Christians before the second coming of Christ were very real to me and were in fact part of the discourse, the milieu, the zeitgeist in the years immediately after Ronald Reagan was shot in Idaho in those evangelical Baptist communities. From that moment on, I remember my world being filled with outward conspiratorial thinking. Adults were now having discussions about numerology, how the number of the beast was showing up in politics. The, so this indoctrination began in earnest around 1985 against what was a very real, very distant threat of nuclear crisis for me. When I watch the film Flirting with Disaster, I don't see an adoptee who experienced all that. I see an adoptee who grew up in a different kind of sheltered experience. But his need for search is equally visible in my own psyche as it was when I first saw that film. His need to go on a quest around the country, disregarding the consequences, destroying relationships in the process, and awkwardly getting it wrong, felt like a farce to warn me against setting out on my own quest, right? Like this is the the world-ending consequence of search is that it will destroy your relationships, it destroy your marriage, it will upend the social order, it will destroy the lives of both your biological and adoptive families and put you in very real physical threat. But in a way, like my whole childhood, it felt like a very real, very distant, if you will, threat of nuclear crisis. The Challenger had exploded, something I watched happen in real time on the television when I was a kid, as it had preempted the regular reruns of Star Trek I would routinely watch after school, Um, and that launched a months-long study of the Book of Revelation under my adoptive father's direction. Uh, Then I relied on this knowledge to discuss with other kids how the world might end. My world was driven by speculation, and so it is no wonder that I applied the same speculation inward, secretly inventing stories about why my biological parents hadn't come to reclaim me. In dreams, they would come, howling with a pack of wolves or descending from the sky in a starship. In my mind, my biological parents were together on a spaceship, perhaps having been abducted, drafted into a massive space war like in the last Starfighter 1984 movie. I would think that if I were awake and staring up at the right moment, they'd sense me and return to take me with them so I'd practice psychic projection into the stars. Uh, As I aged and was allowed to do so, I began to sleep outside where I'd stare into the Milky Way and imagine them far in the distance when I was 13, 14, and the summer nights were clear, silent except for coyotes calling in the distance. As a child, I never fantasized that my biological mother and father were separated. Uh, I saw them, like you see the couple in Flirting with Disaster at the end of the movie, together somewhere just removed, forced to be away by some circumstances insurmountable. The couple in Flirting with Disaster are sort of felons, sort of hiding out in their own secret lab Uh, in the desert, always in my imagination, the transactional aspect of my mother as a signifier for my birth mother and her position in relation to her own mother, her own father as daughter, and her relation to my birth father likely absent at the moment of of abandonment, of relinquishment. These characterizations were never part of my fantasies of reunion, in that it turned out to be nothing like what I'd Fantasized is a bit of a relief, really. It's hard enough to fit a new branch of a family into one's life without the added stress of a pan-galactic space war of some sort or lycanthropic bloodlines, werewolves. Um, In my reunion fantasies, I sought the god machine, right? I wanted my birth mother and father to come down in the field outside my window with the spaceship. Seeing this played out visually in AI, artificial intelligence, 2001 was kind of an emotional watershed. As much as I critically disliked the film, I was moved to tears by the final sequences. I I wanted to be reabducted, or abducted by my biological family so badly I could smell red sulfur and potassium nitrate in my dreams. I could hear the exhaust humming when I was half asleep. I would fantasize about grabbing my clothes in a duffel bag, knowing I would be out my window before my adoptive parents could awake. I laid in bed at night trying to send telepathic messages into the stars. The world could be different, I remember thinking, if I were only with my real mom. Uh, none of this is true, nor would it have been true, but the fantasies persisted in other ways. I had dreams of living in another house with different grandparents. I struggled to explain these dreams. They felt like fragments of another universe, but my adoptive parents didn't listen. My grandparents, for I had this dream for the first time on a trip to visit grandparents in North Tonawanda, New York, my grandparents knowingly nodded, then never explained. It was as if they had promised never to talk to me about my adoption. There's always a momentary lapse between my recall of a moment and my belief that the moment transpired. I am consciously validating my memories, trying to place them in context, in sequence, using whatever indicators I can recover to prove to myself somehow that the moment existed. So I am meant to be grateful that a deserving couple rescued me from a fallen woman, that I was saved from a lifestyle of sin. I am certain there were moments of psychic resonance between me and other members of my biological family, because these moments did begin the Dream the desire to connect the ongoing daydreams of my adolescence after what I later learned was an interaction with my biological grandmother at an event at Grace Baptist Church in support of the church and local school library or the schools, sort of building up their reservoir of available books. She was a member of the church. I was a student at the church's private school. I mentioned Twin Falls Christian Academy. So encounter encountering her uh, dislodged a kind of consciousness, I think perhaps a resonance in my DNA, genetic memory. I felt a false self slip. So there was a gap into my world, like a chasm, a uh, canyon, and a literal, actual abyss. The sensation I get high in my sinuses when I feel vertigo about to come on, it's a sensation, a sense of panic that filling the full field of my vision sort of with an iridescent over sharpened consistency. Um, This is my instinctual response to identity erasure. I I get this same almost visual sense that I must flee or drown. The, The existence of the self is as important to the brain as the existence of the body. I struggled with healing a disrupted identity with no map, no input, and no way to really articulate the damage that had been suffered, which was a crisis of ego, so meeting her and likely picking up subconscious aspects from the soup of culture, which in with I was enmeshed, in addition to probably the first time I'd ever experienced any sort of genetic similitude, uh, similarity, genetic mirroring, meant that I was sent on a path of self-recovery, Or perhaps self uncovering. There is an identity underneath my name, literally papered over by documentation by court order. While I doubt my birth certificate, the real one, has the word bastard or illegitimate stamped upon it, I do think I am neither bastard nor illegitimate, and I am sickened by the religion and the society that saw my birth mother's pregnancy as something to be kept hidden. If anything, My birth certificate is a lie being told to a community that deserves to face its own consequences of belief. There is no reckoning of faith with truth. When lies become children, you then refuse to acknowledge without a layer of deceit. I like the title of the movie, Flirting with Disaster, the 1996 film, more than I like the film. I think it's an excellent title for what the movie purports to be, which is an adoptee in search. I think that Ben Stiller, I think that everyone in the film, it's a wonderful film, cast with wonderful players, with a a horrendous, horrendous production company behind it and, and a questionable script. As a child, very little was said about my true mother except that she made the right choice in giving me up and she could only have done that if she really loved me. Well, it would have been entirely possible to completely erase her from my discourse. As a young child, she was kept a part of my story in so far as she provided a point of origin, the obverse of my whirling belly button's scar. My birth father was not as lucky. His presence was never so much as hinted at. Only the mother and child are re-traumatized by the offense of birth and the truth of that time was, and has been, and must always remain lost to the moment of those who were there bearing witness. My adoptive mother told me the lawyer's secretary dressed as a postpartum patient and was wheeled out of the hospital, holding me, only four hours old, from the Magic Valley Regional Medical Center on April 15, 1974, probably around 5 p.m. in the afternoon. The lawyer and his secretary then drove me to Jerry and Karen Unruh and dropped me off. I was told I never cried, not that night, nor the next. I was so silent they thought I left the first night. I do not know the story of how I was born, what led up to the moment, what I was named. I have only the story of purchase, of receipt. I was prized, a value-added endeavor. The mother was subsumed by the family hiding its own secrets, and I was raised under watchful eye, hinted too, through my life, that my father might have been a bit Indian. There was always a belief that I might have native blood based on the fact that I tanned deeply during the summer, enough that I became anxious about my skin, internalizing this belief from cues I sensed around me. This was usually brought up as a warning that I shouldn't drink alcohol. Even later, when I was in communication with my biological extended family, there was this implication that my father was slightly older, possibly native, and possibly a football player. This was my biological mother's side of the family. Now, two DNA tests have returned no Native American markers, although even that approach to proving oneself Native American is inherently flawed, Centering uh, technological innovation in a discussion which should be left to the privileged and principled stakeholders of that discussion. I am not Shoshone, or Cree, or Lakota, or a member of any faux-native group, i a fairly generalized blend of bloodlines that includes more than an average amount of Neanderthal DNA markers, and on my father's side I am connected to the western migration of Mormons from the east coast to Idaho. When I met my non-native father in Idaho, I learned that he too tanned deeply in sunlight and had been fighting forest fires over the summer of 73, the year I was conceived. Somewhere deep upstream on my mother's side, I'm related to the poet Robert Browning. I have an ancestor, John Henry Harper, who went on and survived the Oregon Trail after first cutting and selling wood to Abraham Lincoln. I have a storied past to which I am Only now, gaining access and subsequently understanding, I am predominantly Scandinavian, with English-Scottish ancestry as well, so I wonder, all those years I spent pursuing native beliefs, shamanism, shamanism, -shamanism, techno-shamanism, cyber-shamanism, reading about regional differences amongst native tribes in southern Idaho, my understanding of genocide was derived in part from the circumstances in Canada, Australia, Hawaii, or the US around adoption from native communities. Something I became sensitized to during these years before the DNA results were useful enough to confirm what I feel are probably now my truths. Um, but you know, I learned in 1978 about the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed in part to prevent adoptions like mine, or so I had thought. Um, so, Race is a cipher in my life, and such a strong signifier of value, or so I'd learned to negotiate within culture that my expressions of self-worth were intimately tied into what I believed others believed about what I was, like the replicants in Blade Runner, the 1982 film. I was a counterfeit white person, slipping between the scenes, Transracial, except somehow, as I learned conclusively in 2018, I wasn't. I was never a person of color, except for all those years I believed I was. And that I shouldn't drink because I might be an alcoholic, or I should find a spirit animal who might lead me to my tribe, or any of the other endless white nonsense that was floating around in the zeitgeist in the late 80s and early 90s. All of these lies led me through paths of learning that I would have never otherwise embraced. My confusion and the occult reluctance to accept that confusion was the sole energizing force that kept me guessing kept me awake kept me alive when i would have otherwise given up given into that relentless conviction that i am and have always been tossed aside i am relentless at least in struggling to find out why it ended up where i had ended up if I have a patronus, if you will, to cannibalize J.K. Rowling's notions. It's a really stubborn badger, powerless to achieve answers in legitimate ways. I've tried astral travel, I've tried witchcraft, I've tried calling on spirits, and summoning my ancestors, figuring maybe they'd tip me off somehow. My teen years were filled with frustrating reading about hypnosis, magic, tarot, divination, and secret societies. My early 20s were no different, but I matured in how I understood my place in the world and began to be more methodical. Uh, By my 30s, enough that I did finally, in my mid-40s put it all together. When I first believed I was indigenous, I immediately thought that the reason I was being kept hidden, that started to bother me. I'm not positive my adoption was illegal, but I feel like it might have been that my family should have had oversight of some sort. Certainly when I learned about the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978, I saw clearly in my own life story why this act was essential to prevent children from being disappeared into white adoptive families. The story about my own adoption that I was told seemed sketchy, unformed. People should not just be allowed to take a baby from a pastor and a lawyer without thought given to where the baby itself had come. Nor should anyone be allowed to sign away their child immediately after giving birth before they've come down from anesthesia, while still under whatever possible effects the sedatives and pain relievers used during labor had. I certainly didn't think this at first, but after years and years of turning the story of my adoption over and over in my head, I find it more and more unsettling. Like the guy in Dark City, the 1998 film who just throws up his hands, and draws spirals on paper all over his bedroom. I was raised believing that family demons carry over to the children for seven generations, that I may have come into the world as a product of sin, that I was marred, misshapen, that only God could redeem me, but my identity as a bastard, a mamzer, must be stricken, that I would be washed in the blood of Christ so that my sin didn't give me away, that the blood absorbed the sin and left me clear to the proof of that sin. Uh, bear in mind, this is nearly exactly the wording that was used. Washed in the blood of Christ is used in quotes, but it is said to me by countless different individuals throughout my young life. Uh, the secrecy as a young child around my adoption, the identity of an adoptee is sanctified. Sacrosanct, the rhetoric of religiosity is invoked when adoptees are discussed. But I am always confronted with the question of my own cursed nature in these moments. Uh, The song Am I Evil by Diamond Head, as covered by Metallica, plays in my mind when I think back to this time in my life. As a soundtrack, I feel my true identity is somehow radiating criminality. I am not a sinner, I am evidence of sin, spreading sin through touch, some kind of King Midas of sorts. by embrace. The end result being I embraced this identity, finding it easier, less painful psychically to blast Danzig, Ministry, Typo, Negative, Faith No More, and Skinny Puppy, rather than to listen to my own inner turmoil, at odds as I was with the prescribed roles appropriated within the larger Unruh extended family. I did not and do not fit within their evangelical, extensive, conservative agendas and desires. And when I was put in a Christian mental hospital, it was for demonic influence, which, as I have been raised, is about as unforgivable and dangerous a situation a Christian could be in, that other members of the church and community should be informed. Uh, That is potentially a viral outbreak of demon. I was seen as touched by the essence of evil and was detained hidden away for it. Now I find that I wrap myself in symbols that radiate the same rejection of that worldview as a performance of individuation. In some sense, perhaps it's performance, perhaps all identity is performance. Uh, I studied people and became what they needed or expected or whatever would make them laugh. I reflected the situations I found myself in, but I was so deeply bored by Christian life that I struck increasingly the shadows, to the edges, so I didn't have to always perform. It was easier instead to find myself amongst the others, the isolated. As I grew older, my roommate's list expanded to include war veterans, foster kids who'd grown up outside of traditional economies, an adoptee who became pagan despite his adoptive family's strong Catholic adherence, a woman from a divorced home whose estranged father died after we'd met, and with whom I raised a very large number of cats and a great number of other wonderful individuals, all of whom existed just off the radar of normalcy, as understood within Kansas. For me, the 90s were a cauldron, a stew, a series of desperate choices that cumulatively led me to formulate some unique approaches to a question I didn't know how to answer, and a chance to discover how wounded so many others were around me. I hope I helped others out along the way. But one thought consumes some of my thoughts as I grew older, um, which is, I am someone else's sin and the state of Idaho is duty-bound to maintain the lie of my identity. Additionally, as I became more sexually aware, I was coming of age in Wichita, Kansas during Operation Rescue when Terry Randall came to town to charge up all the churches into an army of God that could take down and eliminate all of the abortion providers. So this got underway in the weeks after I'd been detained and imprisoned in the Christian Mental Hospital in Texas. So I missed the guest sermons in my adoptive parents' church. The propaganda of anti-choice rhetoric did not stick with me because by that point I wanted to have been aborted. My uh, opinion of my life was dismal. I saw no way out of the life my adoptive parents planned out, and I saw all of the men in the evangelical church as fake, sinister, and threatening. I did not want to be near these people, let alone did I model them as potential role models in my life. And by having not been there during the period of propagandizing that happened, I did not see the gradual changes in the uh, evangelical culture. I left, and when I came back, it had suddenly become extremely anti-abortion, where previously it had just been part of the conversation. I, and now I wonder if I know why. I think this issue and the tones of angry men filled the last few weeks of my life in the womb, from mid-February through April 15th, 1974, when I was born. Angry men talking about religion, in particular, abortion or sex, fill me with a rage that starts in my bones at my elbows. I feel it. It's a physical sensation. Uh, I am also pushed so much into a corner where I secreted away my true feelings and performed obedience to instructions, that when I was asked to join with the church members in protest in an abortion clinic, I found a way to retreat into despair and remain untouchable. I could no longer be forced into their army of God. On July 5th, I took a terrified friend to get an abortion from Dr. Tiller who would later be gunned down in his own church by one of these Army of God protesters. She was six months pregnant, uh, almost, and was struggling to get away from the man, a cocaine dealer, who had impregnated her, because that man was also the reason she was using cocaine and amphetamines. I was at her side through it all, hmm. traveling with her, watching her terror, seeing the rage on the protesters, being led inside the building by sheriff's officer, all of them assuming I was the father of the child to be aborted. And I found myself disassociating somehow at her side. Doing what I knew was the most compassionate thing I could do for her. I was holding her hand. I was also taking on all the perceived sins, eating them, dissolving them in the mask I wore for a face. The wood paneling of Dr. Tiller's office remains with me. That day, the radio uh, was playing the news of Bob Ross's death. Uh, That remains with me. I had been watching his shows and learning to paint in the weeks prior. Uh, The cramps and agony that she went through after the operation as I drove her across Wichita, away from the signs and protesters outside the clinic, Through a crowd, through whom we had to drive past to leave, as she, I mean, ashen faced, returned to the car after the operation. I believe that day turned her life in a new direction and she did escape her addictions later that summer with the aid of her friends and a couple of bouts of LSD. That year and the next I had found friends with which I conspired to change the world. And for a year in Denver from the end of 1996 to the end of 97, I redefined myself. I wrote poetry, I read it aloud at open mics at the Mercury Cafe and other locations around the city. Um, I explored non-Christian spirituality. My Kansas driver's license expired in April of 97 and I learned how difficult it was to find employment without legal documentation. When I realized that it had expired, I tried to get one through Colorado, but I had no way to prove residence and lived without a lease. I had been hired by a temp agency in February of that year and was able to continue getting short minimum wage jobs that paid daily. But the few times I almost got a full-time job, I found the lack of identifying documents an enormous hurdle, as was my inability to pull together any savings when I only brought home about $35 a day on those days I did work. I remain anxious about legal documentation even now in my life. I'm afraid there will be some overly fastidious government clerk who will spot a missing signature on my decree of adoption and nullify my identity all over again, this time completely. I will be deported to some land of non-entities. I returned to Kansas at the end of 1997 something I did reluctantly and without announcing my departure to my roommates in Colorado. I'd also left behind a cat I nursed back to health, a cat named Bacchus. This is probably one of the worst things I've done, something I've looked back on with regret for a number of years, leaving behind a cat I'd adopted. I reached my adoptive parent's house after eight hours of driving, and 12 hours later, my roommate showed up, the same person that, in high school, we bonded over our love of role-playing games, he was bringing with me with him uh, my cat Bacchus, and he attacked me. He slammed the back of my head. <sighs> Ouch. He slammed the back of my head into the sidewalk outside my parents' house, leaving me nauseous and confused. He left as my adoptive parents called the police. I recovered from the concussion and spent several weeks recovering all the documents I needed to get a full-time job in Wichita. When I did not have the necessary documents to prove residency at my adoptive parent's address, the clerk noted my last name, which was identical to the county commissioner's name at the moment, and smiled away the red tape for my driver's license. I know there are moments of privilege, white privilege. Or the identity of my adoptive parents provided me, or allowed me, to move through spaces and in ways I would never have experienced in a different timeline in a universe next door, or if I'd been born a month later or a week earlier. I come to terms with my roommate friend, or hopefully so, as we've shared a lot of off-the-record adventures in the previous years, and Bacchus Sothis and Nephthys were a litter of kittens born inside a pyramid he had built to supercharge the cats with mystic force. So after Bacchus had survived a serious wound to his belly, I became convinced that between the pyramid he'd been born in and all the dog milk he'd nursed from the dog rather than the cat for some reason, he'd become pretty rugged. He grew large at my adoptive parents' house. He was nearly 38 pounds when I weighed him before finally leaving for college in 99 at the age that I could get alone without my adoptive parents cosign, I'll talk more about that in the next episode, but for now, my name is Jeffrey Wes Um As I've said before, I was born in Twin Falls, Idaho at the Magic Valley Regional Medical Center on April 15th, 1974, a little before 1 p.m. And before sunset that day, I was with my adoptive parents and I've kind of been putting this puzzle together ever since.